Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Dearly loved friends, we should love each other because that love is from God. What's more, each person who practices love is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't practice love doesn't know God because God is love. This love from God was revealed among us like this. God has sent his one and only son into the world so that we may live through the son. This love doesn't mean that we have loved God, but that God loved us. God even sent his own son as a way our sins are done away with. Dearly loved friends, if God loved us in that way, then we owe it to each other to practice love. No person has ever seen God. If we practice love for each other, then God stays among us, and God's love has reached its goal with us. We know that we stay with God, and God with us, because God has given us a portion of his own Holy Spirit. Now, we have seen and are bearing witness that the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. God stays with whoever acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, and that person stays with God. What's more, we've known and trusted the love that God has with us. This God is love. And each person who stays with that love stays with God, and God stays with that person. That's how the love of God has reached its goal with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because just as the Son is, so also are we in this world. No fear exists in this love, but love that has reached its goal casts away such fear because fear has to do with punishment. So the person who is fearful has not reached the goal with love. We practice love because God loved us first. For anyone who says, I love God, and who hates brother or sister is a liar, because anyone who doesn't love the brother or sister whom they have seen is unable to love the God whom they haven't seen. The commandment we have from God is this. Anyone who loves God should love their brother or sister also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Good to be with you all this morning. My name is Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace, and I'm going to be sharing with us um, from God's Word from 1 John 4. Before that, I'd like to pray and ask that God would be the one who speaks to us. So will you pray with me? God, thank you for being a God who is mindful of us, who cares for us, who desires to speak to us. Give us ears to hear you. Give us the humility and the open hearts to receive what it is you have to say. 
God, I ask that through our encounter with you, we might be transformed people, um, that we might experience the love that you have for us so that we might bear witness to that love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been in a series um, in 1 John 4 for the last few weeks, and today is actually the last week of this series in which we've been talking about the love of God. And if, so, if, if God so loved us, then what might be possible? And we've spent the last four weeks, or three weeks, and this morning talking about various um, components of that. This idea that, that it all begins with the love of God. That, that our spiritual life together begins from that point. Um, from this point of, of God loving us. And then we talked about how we are born of God into God by the cross. And last week we talked about the, this relationship between love and fear. And how God's perfect love casts out fear. And how it might help us to present ourselves as we are. Not these highly edited versions of ourselves that we want people to love. Well, this week we're going to be talking about because of love. So what does God's love make, make possible? And the whole idea of God's love and kind of being immersed in it for the last few weeks has been really challenging for me. Um, my wife and I, we just finished season two last week of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Now, yeah, right, okay, that's good. So you guys watch that too. Um, which is great. So in, in the last episode, the last line, so Midge Maisel is this character who, because of something that happens in her marriage, she turns to stand-up comedy. And this is in the 1950s, and, and she's a woman, so I don't know if you know this, but that's strange, that's rare, that this would actually happen, that she would have a voice, per se. Um, and, and what's interesting in this story is that she begins to to like it. She wants to be in relationships with other people and, and, and friendships. And, and, but then at the very end of season two, and I hope you've seen it, um, but honestly, this introduction doesn't work unless I, uh, uh, spoil, no, I won't spoil it too much. Um, don't worry, but, but you know the story. So she gets to the end, and her final line is this. After making some decisions and being confronted with this reality that, that she might actually, because of, of what she wants, she might be alone for the rest of her life. She might end up alone. And she goes to this one central figure, person in her life, and, uh, and she says to him, Tonight, I just need to be with somebody who loves me. Somebody I know who loves me. And it was so frustrating. Because if you, if you followed the story, it felt so weird. And, and we, my wife and I turned it off and we're like, well, that's annoying. Um, I don't know what to expect. But I think as I've thought about that ending, one of the reasons why I found it so frustrating is because I can actually see myself in Mitch. I can see myself wanting all of these different things or thinking that all of these different things are going to give me the sense of satisfaction that I want or that I've been longing. This love coming from people as she's standing on the stage making them laugh. Or this love from this, this husband who really betrayed her but she can't seem to stop loving. This love from this doctor who's really affectionate toward her and wants to be with her. She's, she's pulled in all these different directions of wanting to experience love. 
But everything seems to be lacking. Nothing seems to be giving her what it is she wants. And I can't help but think of that, that famous Augustinian phrase that says, We were made for you, Lord. And our soul is restless until we find our rest in you. And I wonder if you this morning find yourself in a place of restlessness. That all of the different things that you've tried to give you a sense of worth or fulfillment, of feeling loved, I wonder if you've come to the end of those and say, man, there is still something missing. There is still something lacking. And I just want to be with someone who loves me. Well, in 1 John 4, it is very clear who that someone is. Very clear where that love comes from that will, that will fulfill, that will provide all that we've been looking for. And it is the love of God. That is where the spiritual life begins. And it is what produces the power for us to be able to then love in a way like God. So because of love... Now John, or the writer, the author of 1 John, suggests that the love of God is to produce within us love for one another. Now if you want to turn to your Bibles to 1 John 4, 1023 is the page. It's almost as if the, what the author is wanting to do is to talk about how we're to love one another, but he can't talk about how to love each other if he doesn't first talk about the love of God. But if you see in the passage in verse 7 and then in verse 21, it's bookended with this call to love one another. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then verse 20, 21, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother and sister. That the love of God is to produce within us love for one another. That that is one of the primary goals of God's love, is to help us love each other. And see, here's the thing about this, this text. It constantly goes in and out of talking about God's love and then how we're to love one another. And if we love, if we love God, then of course we're to love our brothers and sisters. And how can we say we love God, but yet not love our brothers and sisters? It's all wrapped up in this big ball of yarn. And you can't detach them. And to do so would to do something contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's made possible. A writer about the spiritual life named M. Robert Mulholland talks about this, and he has this book on the spiritual disciplines and how they exist to actually help us to be with one another. That God gives us these, these ways of being with him, and they are then to produce within us a... a outpouring and outflowing of love for one another. He says this, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. No thanks, I'd rather not. No, but if you think about it, if, if I want to think about how my spiritual life is going, then the place to look is how am I in relationship with one with you and you with me. He continues on, our relationships with others are not only the testing grounds of our spiritual life, but also the places where our growth toward wholeness in Christ happens. There is a temptation to think that our spiritual growth takes place in the privacy of our personal relationship with God, and then, once it is sufficiently developed, we can export it into our relationships with others and then be Christian together. 
But holistic spirituality, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, takes place in the midst of our relationships with others, not apart from them. So our spiritual growth together happens here, in relationship with one another. If we want to be more loving, if we want to experience more of God's love, it's not alone and just me and God. It is actually us together in our life with God that helps produce the type of love that First John is talking about. Now, that's a radical notion considering that it's so much easier to be with God alone. Is it not true? I mean, you think that you're a wonderful person if you're just with God by yourself. I do. I am the best perfect person when I am just with God in the morning and my kids haven't yet woken up. But as soon as, as, soon as I'm in relationship with other people, as soon as I make choices that offend, or as soon as other people make choices that offend me, that's when the good news of Jesus Christ is actually tested. Do I believe this? Is this the thing that actually guides my life? C.S. Lewis talks about friendship, and I think it's true of the Christian community. He says it's really easy to look at your friends, to look at Christian community, and think, man, I've made really good choices of the people that I'm around. Right? This is true of your friends. You can look at your friends and think, man, I picked these people. But he says, what if we thought about the Christian life in such a way that there are no chances, but that somehow God is, is in control and responsible? What if it was more that God chose us for one another? Is that, how would that change the way that we think about our life together, to think that you and I, in relationship to one another, I didn't choose you, you didn't choose, choose me, but somehow God chose us to be together? How does that reframe our life together? How does that reframe our differences, our struggles, our arguments? If God chose us for one another then we, we need to grow up into Christ together, believing that we need each other actually to be shaped into the likeness of Jesus. That I can't do it apart from you, and you can't do it apart from me, even if you would like to. It's all wrapped up together. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, here's why I think this is important, or one of the reasons. And I'm going to speak personally. As I, as I look at the church, and I'm going to speak from somebody in my generation, the younger generation. Um, I'm not, it wasn't a joke. I wasn't, making, I wasn't trying to poke at the, those who are in the older generation. But as one in the younger generation, I want to talk to those who are younger. Or maybe I want to talk to those who are older and I want the younger to hear. Whatever. I'm just going to talk and then you guys can figure it out. But... Um, there's this, this thing happening in the church, in capital C Church, not just ours, in which young people in a younger generation are actually finding it really difficult, finding it really hard to know why they are part of this thing at all, the church. It actually seems like it's a lot more, more challenging and difficult than what it's worth. What good is it doing? Because this thing is too hard to be a part of. Now you hear, and it's actually pretty common, people who are part of the faith, and you can hear this in podcasts and interviews all over the place. There are so many different stories of deconversion, 
where these people who grew up in these Christian homes, and usually around my age, they start to wonder, I don't know if I need this anymore. I don't know if this actually makes sense of my life or my experience. My understanding of God is, it seems to be so, so much different than my parents' understanding or those who are older. So maybe the thing to do then is to exit the church, to go outside of it. And then over time, faith seems to dwindle. It doesn't seem to have any sort of bearing on one's life. And sooner or later, they don't have any need for God. Now, do you, is that something that you feel? Or is that something that you are aware of, at least in terms of people you talk to, who maybe are younger? And I'm not saying it has to be younger. I'm saying that's where I notice it most often. There's this real sense that the church these, that is represented by these people who are older, and they just don't get it, or they don't get me. And so the place where I need to go is outside of it and to find people who are more like-minded. But then there's, there are those of you who are older, who you've been a part of this thing called the church for a long period of time, and, and you have this, this sense of things. And you look at the younger generation— Maybe me, I don't know. And, and the things that are happening is sort of the tensions that are building. And it's easy to think, wow, they just, they just don't get it. Or um, they, they don't really fear God, or they don't love God to the extent that, that they should. And holiness and, and this type of living, it doesn't necessarily, um, it, it's not part of their life. And so there's an easy, there's a, there's a sense in which you can have fear, like, oh, don't let them change this. Now, is that, do you, is this something that resonates with you in terms of how the church, capital C, is operating? I hope it's not just me, because I feel like it's in the air. Well, what I'm trying to say is what, what is easy to do, if God's love isn't guiding us, we then just find people who are like us. We find people who are like-minded in the ways that we are like-minded, and we actually don't need the love of God to make it possible. We just need to like each other, and we need to agree with one another completely and wholly. But see, for those from the younger generation, here's what I want to tell those of you in the older generation. I need you. We, those who are younger, we need you. Those of us who feel like we're wandering or we're not sure what to do or how to think about God, we actually need you in our lives and we need your grace, we need your mercy, and we need you to be with us and to help us and to, to grow up into Christ. But those of you who are older, you need us too. You need us in our questions and our longing to experience and encounter something transcendent again. That desire, I promise you, those of us who are young, and I talk with enough young people and friends to know this, they want to experience God again. Well, that desire to encounter God afresh, those of you who are older need that. And we need to pray together that God would do something. But see, none of that will take place. We will not stay together or be together unless we are working to love one another. And that work, I'm not saying try harder to love. That's actually not at all what I'm saying. The work is finding 
our place, our rest, our identity, our love again in God. In 1 John 4, he cannot stop using the language of abide. Abide in my love. If you abide in my love, you will love one another. Abide, abide, abide. What does that mean? It's this interconnectedness. It's this, this like resting in the current of God's activity. It's be placing yourself in the current of God's love so it is the thing that empowers us. It's what makes it possible. Let's look a little bit in the text. Verse, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides, abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now think about this for a minute. No one has ever seen God, but the way to see God is to see his love perfected in us. Now, if the world is looking for God, then the place to find it is in the way that we love each other. And the world is looking for God. And it is our love for one another that will perhaps bear witness to the fact that God actually is. And that he has done what he has said he has done in the person of Jesus. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's this constant abiding connectedness with God is sitting in the current of God's loving activity is what makes love possible. It's not go and like somebody better. Go just and try to love the other person. It's actually, get get close to Jesus. If you want to love your brother and sister, then abide with Christ. Jesus uses this metaphor in John 15 about the vine and the branches. And again, he talks there about abiding in love. It's this idea of being so connected to Jesus that you can't help but have fruit produced. And is it when... When you look at a vine and you look at the grapes, that are, you think, wow, great job, grapes. You did a good job bearing fruit. That doesn't make any sense because it's not the grapes who bore the fruit. It's actually the plant and the roots and the watering and the, and, and the person who is tending to that garden. I mean, there's so many things involved. Just like our fruit isn't based on our work or our projects, but it's based on the work and the love of God, his nourishment his care, his provision. That's what makes love possible. And here's a question that I've been thinking about. Do I love people in such a way that wouldn't make sense if Jesus didn't live, die, and then was resurrected? So does my life make sense apart from the gospel is another way to ask the question. Like if you were looking at my life or if someone was following Daniel Long for a week, a day, a month or whatever, and we just remove the gospel, would anything about my life change? Does my life make sense without the love of God? And chances are, so for so many of us, for this is true for me, that removing the love of God, my life might still make sense. And that can't be the Christian way. Because we attach ourselves to the story of God, 
embodied in the person of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, and we say, this is all that gives me life. This is where it's all found. So to remove that should make my life unintelligible. It shouldn't make sense. My love for you and your love for me and our love for one another, we should be loving in such a way that people come in here and say, how is that possible? How can you sit next to that person and say the same words together? Don't you know who they voted for? I mean, but seriously, somebody should be able to walk in and say, this doesn't make any sense. And you're like, you're right. It absolutely doesn't. The only thing that can make sense of it is the love of God found in Jesus Christ bringing us together. That is what makes sense of what is going on. But do we live in a way that we need the gospel to make sense of our lives? Do I? Do we together? That's the question before us. And 1 John 4 suggests that you can't detach it. If you are loving one another in the way that, that, we, that is possible, then you need the love of God to make it possible. That is, that is the place where the resources are found. So then what shape does this type of love take? What does it look like for us to love in this type of, in this way? Well, I think the person of Jesus really is the place to look, right? The good shepherd who gave everything for us. The language that, that Jesus himself uses in John 15 says, you are my friends. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So the shape of love that we are called to is laying down our life for one another. We are to lay down our lives for each other. What does it mean for you to lay down your life for the people around you? And where do you start? Well, maybe a good place to start is your home. What does it look like for you to lay down your life for your spouse, for your children, friends, your workplace, here at church? What might it look like if we laid down our lives for one another in a way that we're laying down preferences, that we're laying down even like the things that we feel are just so absolutely important, we're laying those down so that we might then love. And if we are to love in the way that God loves, I mean, his love is patient, his love is forgiving, his love is compassionate, but one word that I find means so much to me when I think of God's love, it's kindness. That God is kind to us. That God is kind to you. When you think of God, do you think of a God who is kind? Because that is the very heart and character of God. There's a theologian, and I've mentioned him before, his name's Stanley Hauerwas. And uh, this other pastor named Samuel Wells, he was his student. And Samuel Wells was having a son, and he told Stanley, I would like for you to be the godparent, the godfather, um, but, you know, not in the movie way. Um, I'd like for you to, to be this godparent to my son. And Stanley says, well, I don't know how to do that well. <laughs> Can you tell me what that means? What do you want me to do? And Samuel Wells says this. He's like, 
Okay, well, why don't you write him a letter every year about things that are important to you? And so he starts to write on these different virtues. And in the year of following his baptism, this, the God's son's baptism, Stanley Hauerwas writes to him on, on the virtue of kindness. And he says this, I believe kindness to be the very character of God. And it is because our faith centers on the incarnation that kindness is the very heart of the way we are called to live. We believe, even in a world as violent as the one in which we find ourselves, that we can risk being kind. We are called to be like God, but we are not called to be God. In fact, we believe we can be like God precisely because God is God and we are not. And real quick, I I keep going back to that sentence, and what I think he means is connected to 1 John 4. If we think we are God then we think we actually have all of the resources required to love in the way that God, or that we're called to love. But that's not true. We need God to love like God. We need Jesus to love like Jesus. We are creatures created by kindness to be kind to all that is. To be kind is to learn how to be a creature with other creatures without regret. To be kind is to learn how to receive kindness from others without protection. To be kind is to be drawn into God's good creation without fear. To be kind is to be disposed to trust the gifts of others that quite literally make life possible. To be kind is to know when not to speak, because nothing can be said that is not false. To be kind is the willingness to be present when nothing can be said or done to make things better. Kindness, the very heart and character of God. And so what might it look like for us to be kind to one another in a way that requires the love of Christ to make it possible? What might it mean for us to be a community empowered by God's love so much so that we then begin to see one another differently? We begin to interact with each other in a different way. That we then become a community empowered by God's love to bear witness to that love in the world. I mean, imagine, imagine what the world might say. Imagine how the world might respond. Confusion might be a good place where the world would would respond. How does that work? That doesn't make any sense. We need the love of God to love like God. We need Jesus to love like Jesus. So who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to move toward? Who do you need to give yourself to in a way that that is challenging because you know you've been withholding in some way? Who do you need to say encouraging words to because so much of your language toward them has been like really salty? Who do you need to to move toward because you know you've been needing to have that hard conversation and you've just been avoiding it? And your relationship, it's decaying as a result. Who as a community are we called to love together? Who are the people among us who need what we have to give, who are in desperate need of something and we have the resources? 
Who is God calling us to love in a way that makes no sense apart from the person of Jesus? And to get really practical, here's a question that came to mind. Who's around my dinner table? Often, if I was to look at my calendar and who I've had over for dinner, they look a lot like me. They probably think the same way I do. We probably have similar convictions. I wonder if a good place to start in the church is for you to think, huh, who do I need to have around my dinner table? Perhaps that's a place where God is wanting to push me into testing the limits of what his love makes possible. Do all of the people you hang out with, do all the people I hang out with, do I need to, make the, do I need to have the gospel make sense of any of those relationships? And I wonder, because of love, because of God's love coming to us in the person of Jesus, if we might be called to a greater sense of loving one another, of abiding in Christ, that then pours out into love for each other in such a way that God is holding us together in a new, beautiful, fresh way. Thanks be to the God who chose us for one another. Thanks be to the God who has brought us together out of his love so that we might grow up into Christ and into the love of Christ for one another.